every revolution and populist movement prefaces their actions with the slogan, We the people. It's an interesting phrase, pregnant with meaning but ultimately devoid of content. We are all people and that includes our worst enemies and the greatest criminals and psychopaths that have ever walked the earth. We the people are those who hate and oppose us as well as our family and friends. People are physical things. If we are born of a woman, we are a member of the humankind. Human beings are not truly a race though the human races is an expression that has been used conventionally to describe the totality of all people. A kind is a class composed of various breeds or races. Races can interbreed but each has distinct features in common as is the case with breeds. Races or breeds are highly distinct but have compatible sexual organs. They are interfertile. The phrase that was used ought to have been, we the people kind. Otherwise, the impression is given the person is talking about one race with one common cause. There is no common good between the two races of man. This is why we the people is a political slogan created to deceive the other race. There are others who are not political and are not assumed under the tag, we the people. These are the subjects of the state, the participants in the political process. There is another group not included. We can blame the government for the division if we wish. Politicians and parties do split us, but they are not wizards nor demons. Okay, a good many politicians may be demons but even demons cannot do magic. Political parties exploit an existing division and manipulate it for their own purposes, but they did not create it out of whole cloth. To be a single people, with a people would need a commonality, a common thread, a common element to hold together. There would be some common thing that would bring us together when events conspired to divide us. There is no such thing. There is no common factor which transcends all of the divisive rhetoric and activities. Politicians rouse us with calls to freedom, patriotism and the need to save our democracy. These are artificial concepts tailored to unite us behind the politician. Freedom is what we choose it to be. The one thing freedom cannot be a universally valid feature that unites all persons. It is our freedoms which most often serve as the topic of our debates. The criminal and autocrat both desire freedom. Only the fool desires to grant it to them. The very rich and powerful want freedom to reign. They have the armies and goons to make freedom work for them. The rich have the money to make the best use of their freedoms. For the very rich and powerful the freedom to sleep under bridges or to starve if one cannot find work is a noble ideal. What bespeaks greater freedom than the market? The monopolist and street corner vendor are equally free to sell their wares and compete with one another. Freedom means the elimination of the tiresome burden of government regulation. We get the point. What is a free market that does not allow us to hire a private army or be a mercenary if one has the money and so chooses? But after all the speeches about freedom and liberty and the grand future of mankind, what are we given in return for our vote? After the speeches and the grand promises, what is there but a gamble called an election? No promise made by a politician is backed by a guarantee. Of course they do not even call what they say a promise, it is a platform. Democracy equals, 1. A strategy by which the citizen transfers his or her power of attorney to a representative, 2. A tacit signing onto a social contract which gives the state the authority to implement a social justice agenda. 3. A cardboard stand, a pencil and a small number of boxes one of which you get to check periodically. 4. 
a method by which candidates get elected for office based on a platform that explains what they intend to with our money. The Honest Man's Dictionary Would we the people need a government if we were all of one mind or shared a common cause? Any child could list at least five things which divide us. There are not many people who could find three things which we have in common, and none of them are likely to matter. Even the definitions of man demonstrate how shallow our understanding of humanity is. The best definition offered at one time was that mankind is a bipedal animal. Most other definitions create circles in which two terms define each other. Even now, the common definition of mankind is a man, woman, or child of the species Homo sapiens, distinguished from other animals by superior mental development, power of articulate speech, and upright stance. That distinguishes us from other animals, but it does little to capture or articulate the nature of the human organism. Why not define us as the creature that so dominates the earth, he has to consciously refrain from exterminating all higher life forms on earth, up to and including himself. Not bad for an animal known for superior mental development that can talk and walk on two legs. How do we trust people who cannot even articulate who they are, compared to the lower forms? Man, mankind equals, 1, a kind composed of two races, 2, a creature able to gamble and determine odds as to future success, 3, a species composed of two living subspecies Homo sapiens sapiens and H.S. apriorian, 4, the only creature able to articulate visions of the future. 5. A creature that lives to believe. The Honest Man's Dictionary. This ability to articulate a future and gamble on its arrival is far more complex in ability than we might imagine. But it is based on a false premise, namely our own moral virtue. Gamblers must conceptualize all relevant factors and give the projection the odds of success. If we think conservatives will win the next election, we are articulating a future and giving it favorable odds and then living as if this future will become real. This pits us and our vision against those with other visions of other futures. This creates a competition unlike that which animals face. Animals compete for food and mates, we or at least some persons, create a worldview, a reality we expect to see emerge. Ultimately, once a person realizes there are two major possible realities, not just one, we realize there is not one race of human beings, but a creature that is a kind composed of two races, each fighting to make dominant his particular idea of reality. A magician confuses people with a lot of natter and hand motions to make what he is doing seem complicated. Life is no different. We wake up each morning with our routines. Routine is a way of dealing with the complexities of life. We live on autopilot for the greater part of our day. It is natural to assume the bigger questions are more complex. But the deeper we go into the nature of life, the simpler the questions and answers become. At the beginning of the beginning there is only two choices. Interestingly, the complications of life are primarily caused by making the wrong choice at the beginning of the beginning, at the place where it all begins. We cannot blame our ancestors for our dilemma. They virtually all made the same wrong choice we made. But we are faced with the same choice. No one is doomed to live with the choice we made at the outset. The choice can be changed and is changed often, but not always for the better. It's difficult to understand what is happening in the church because lies this world spreads can be hard to unravel. But consider the choices you think you have because of the lies you were told. We know about capitalism and communism at least we know what we have been told about them. 
invariably, because these are the only two choices we were given. We support the one and condemn the other. We fight wars over these ideas, paradigms, or concepts. Books by the thousands are written each individually and more comparing them. But if we looked at the true choice and saw these options in the light of the truth, we would know the fight between capitalism and communism is akin to how much alcohol you want in your beer. There is nothing substantially different between these models or systems. It's about the quantity of factors in each, not about the substance of each. It's not even that they are composed of hundreds of dissimilar elements. Both have a state that writes laws, and they have a market. The big issue that is supposed to divide these models is private and public ownership. But this is nothing but property and how it is managed. In both cases there is someone in charge of administrating it. How much difference does it make if the person doing this is an employee of a state or as an employee of a board of directors? We can quibble endlessly over the details, and we do. The important thing to do is not get caught up in arguing over these percentages as if more or less public ownership compared to more or less private ownership is going to change the future of the working poor. Thinking that the world can be made different because the percentage of public involvement in one kind of business model is less than it is in another overstates the impact of the administrator's job on the lives of people. Few people care if their boss is a private owner or public servant. The demands of the job will not change much. Thinking that changes in intensity can give rise to changes in quality serves as the basis for the world's model of good and evil. Most of us think of good and evil as factors on the opposite poles of an infinitely long continuum. In practice this means behavior is always a shade of moral gray. And of course, this thinking fits in well with evolution. Everything begins from nothing. The only thing that is possible is from a modification of a few simple atomic elements. But this view of reality as changes in quantity is just one way of seeing things. Naturalism is a reality created by small incremental changes. There are no true borders dividing anything, because the foundation of everything is the same few constituent elements. Whatever seems fundamentally different is subjective and not real. Like the difference between good and evil differences are just a matter of degree. However, if good and evil are mere differences of quantity on an infinitely long continuum of possible amounts, there is nothing to divide right from wrong from each other, but human opinion. Opinion must be enforced by law because there are no objective markets to divide good and evil in a naturalist universe. What does it matter if the law says no one is to be discriminated against on the basis of race or religion or it says one race is not human and needs to be exterminated? A law is just an opinion held be a powerful influencer. We cannot look at a law and see that one law or opinion is substantially different from the other. It only matters how likely one is to be punished or rewarded for one's actions. Law equals, 1. Opinion codified into a regulation administrated by means of judicial coercion. See judicial coercion, 2. Opinion issued as a regulation backed up by force, which in its modern sophisticated manifestation, is referred to as a justice system. 3. An ethical system for legitimizing who one is and what one is doing. 4. A way to make a practice or activity legal. 4. The transformation of what was moral or immoral into what is legal. 5. A method by which the rule of God becomes the rule of law and citizens with natural rights are turned into subjects with legal rights. This is a process usually engineered by means of the democratic process by which people sign away their natural rights. 
the honest man's dictionary. The law is predicated on the idea that there is but one reality and we are all part of it. The law assumes a single set of rules for all people. Legalists believe we are all one people with a shared identity. But observation does not bear this out. If it were true, we would not have the divisions we do. Nor is it likely we would need the law to control us. Even so, the divisions we see are diversions and distractions from the real issue. The state manufactures these divisions so while we fight each other over these superficial differences, we remain trapped in a reality devised by Satan, divided from the reality created by God. This artificial reality is referred to as the One Reality Hypothesis, OIH. The problem with this conception of reality is that it is a reality based on emotion, not logic. Emotional reality lacks intellectual justification and analytical credibility. The devil works through the emotional side of man. Needless to say, the primary target of Satan is women. The main tool he uses is the law. Women are the natural targets of the law. But we have to look at an alternative view of reality. This is a reality not based on women, law, emotion nor grounded in a contingent understanding of truth. This other reality is not an advocate for a relativist take on culture. God created this reality as analytical in its view of truth and absolutist in the way it sees good and evil. Evil has already been defined, at least implicitly, during the discussion on the one reality hypothesis. As noted, the reality of universalists is based on law and therefore is dependent on the power of the regulatory agency of the state. But the state is not profitable. It is not sustainable because it lacks the key features of a mature agent. The people cannot be regulated without the state exercising authority over property. But the state's actions must be subsidized which also requires the state have authority over the property of those whom it regulates. The state's primary justification for existing is its need to control the source of its sustenance. This may all seem complicated but that is only because it is irrational. The human brain was created to follow logic but when arguments become self-refuting they cannot be understood. The basic truth is astoundingly simple, but it is good to look at all of the implications of a lie, so we understand how universalists think and operate and why this is so dangerous. To make law and enforce it, the state must have authority over that which it regulates. Ultimately this power to regulate always comes down to having authority over assets. Without this authority over the real things of the world, the state cannot regulate the people within its jurisdiction. But the state has no legitimate authority over the things of the earth. It claims them by virtue of the physical power it wields. The state is a manifestation of the dual doctrine of power. Dual doctrine of power, the equals might makes right and the end justifies the means. The end is the accumulation of property, as in property ownership. Wealth, as manifested as property ownership, is the measure of right. Property ownership defines the physical might one is able to employ. The Honest Man's Dictionary This is where the situation becomes very simple, because there are only two options available to us. When we see the truth we see logic, because logic was established by God for his own ends and purposes. Human beings are able to access assets to create value to pay the costs of our existence. If we all did this, the state and its laws would be redundant. But people represent a risk to us because everyone does not want to subsidize their actions with their own labor. 
We experience emotional fear when confronted by others, because they are potentially adherents to the dual doctrine of power, DDOP. They may well believe the power to do, is the ethical justification for doing it. This creates a sharp division between us. Criminals of all kinds adhere to the DDOP. But this adherence to the DDOP creates competition between persons. The only way what is right can be established or confirmed, is by doing what one thinks one ought to do. If it can be done then it was the right thing to do. This is how criminals think. The state is the gang that has the most power and the most might and therefore has access to the most property which gives the state its credibility and legitimacy. In the mind of the state, if you can kill faster than anyone else, you have the greater legitimacy. But the state cannot supply its own wants. If it could and did so it would not be the state. This is the paradox those who live in the OWH and by the DDOP, cannot escape. If every agent lived by its own hand, there would be no crime and no need for the state. If you live by the dual doctrine of power, DDOP, you cannot pay your costs. This is a simple fact of life. No one who believes might makes right does not expropriate wealth from others. If you do not pay your own way, to reduce the demands on your time, universalists must establish laws or rules and perhaps an entire legal system to legitimize and systemize the expropriations. But we have not pointed out the greatest problem with the OWH or what we refer to as universalism. The universalist worldview is a self-contradiction. To be credible the OWH has to encompass all conceptions and ideas about reality. All cultures and ways of living and thinking are variations. There cannot be anything substantially different about any of them. But this threshold of inclusivity cannot be reached. The OWH might be able to embrace and accept all ideas that are based on law and contingent truths, but it cannot embrace a reality that rejects law and contingent truths. A relativistic and universalist view of reality cannot include an absolutist perspective. Christianity holds to an absolutist and analytical reality in which its major institution is the church based on faith. Christianity in its purest form, is not a religion and it is not only not based on law, but Christianity is also specifically created to abjure law and legal systems. Atheists might argue they have no faith, but this is not absolutely true. But that is the point, because if your faith is partial, contingent, or grounded in some kind of quid pro quo, you do not truly have faith. The only real faith is an absolute faith. There can be no reservations with faith, it must be absolute. The only kind of faith that reaches this threshold, is a Christian's faith in Jesus. Faith equals, 1, an intellectual position that has no rational basis and is incapable of being substantiated, e.g. the existence of a transcendent and unverifiable physical reality. 2, analytical or logical certainty, 2 plus 2 is equal to 4. 3, confidence not based on phenomenological events or dependent on the senses. The Honest Man's Dictionary. The question is then, if we have faith in Jesus why would we need or want the law? Why would we need to have others make rules for us to follow, if we had the truth of Jesus? This ought to give us pause, because if we have rejected law in favor of faith, what does this look like in real time at ground zero? If we are all following Jesus others ought not to represent risk to us. The corollary of this is that we would have faith in our fellow Christians. This gives us a foothold into the church. Because what would it mean to have faith in Jesus yet fear all those who profess to believe in him? 
we noted that legalists can only exist by having authority over property. If a legalist is not able to expropriate the wealth of others, they would have to live on the wealth they produced by their own hand. But this is not the meaning of a legalist. If you and others live by your own work law is no longer needed. Law is not even possible because no one would be there to make and enforce it. The point is, by living on their own work, they would not pose a risk to anyone else. This means that Christians, having rejected the law and therefore the means by which they would be able to justify the expropriation of wealth, must live in faith with others of their kind, posing no risk to anyone else. The simple change from law to faith changes everything. The church is people who live by their own hand because they live by faith and not by law. Christians produce things of value. But it cannot and does not end there. Because logic forces certain conclusions onto those who choose to live by faith. We have said that legalists impose costs onto those who live in faith. By the same token Christians do not impose costs onto anyone else. This causes us to ask what this living in faith looks like. We know that there is not much in this world that is suitable in its raw state for human consumption. Air is the one exception. Water and food and shelter all need processing to make them beneficial to mankind. Some of this can be done at the level of the individual, which is also what is termed the subsistence level. It really does not get us beyond the level at which life is possible. It does not reach the threshold which civilization needs to exist. Which brings us back to the nature of the church and the issue of trust. If we did not trust each other, we would live as solitary creatures, red in tooth and claw, as Hobbes would have it. But we are not well suited for the solitary life. While we are smarter than the animals, our intelligence does not do much for us as solitary creatures. To get the most of our intelligence requires the cooperation of others. We might conceive of devising a deadfall or system of irrigation but without assistance the project will not get far or will as likely benefit someone else as us. That being said, ought we trust those who profess Christ? It does not seem to be a good idea. We would need to verify their faith. This would mean we would trust them if it was possible to substantiate, they trusted us. The person of faith can be trusted because the person who lives in faith, trusts those who live in faith. That is how Christianity works. We noted above that faith is often considered trust in something with no substance or context, but this is not possible. People might claim to have faith in magic, or prayer or an amulet, but in fact they would never put themselves in a position in which all that stood between them and disaster was the power of the thing they claimed to have faith in. The power of these things is never tested in terms of a result that can be quantified. Trust is built up over time and is based on accumulated experience. Couples married for many years trust one another. Christians learn to trust God, but no one is going to trust someone based on their profession of faith and a 10k gold-plated crucifix. If we cannot trust other Christians we rely on the institutions of the world, including the law and the regulatory state. But we know that the OWH is an intrinsically flawed view of reality and democracy is pushing us closer and closer to Armageddon. But for many Christians, there is no choice. We the same Christian people, are to separate from they the insane leftists. Christians know this but how do we separate from the fallen world, if we do not trust the people of Christ? That is the dilemma Christians have always faced. But it is a dilemma of our own making, or a dilemma of our immersing ourselves in the liberal system. 
like the atheist who assumes reality is physical, eliminating the possibility of God. Christians believe that might makes right and the end justifies the means and eliminate the possibility of living in faith. They accept the reality of liberalism, not because it makes sense or they think it is right, but because they think they can justify their blasphemy. In any case, like every other addict, they cannot let go their addiction to the gamble that is liberalism. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Treasure is property. We do not need to ask what our treasure is or why we would love it. The fact that we own property is all we need to know. Matt 6, 19-21 Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Property is treasure, you have property, you have treasure, if you have treasure this is where your love is. It is just the way things are and it cannot be different. To gamble that you can defeat the truth of God is unimportant. That is what evil does. It gambles. You gamble you can lay up treasure on earth but do it in a way that you can still enter heaven. It is this gamble why Jesus also said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Matt 19, 22-26 But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, Verily I say unto you, that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus beheld them, and said unto them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. We know the earth existed long before man came on the scene. Even if we are not Christian no one needs to tell us we never created any part of the natural world. We add value to it to make it more useful to us but this is just us transforming matter. Nothing is created or destroyed. But this is good because it tells us the value of God's world is constant. What we need to know is the value we added to it. All value is added to God's creation by work. This gives us the labor theory of value. Liberals argue that this theory is not an accurate way to define the price of a product or service. Liberals want their treasure factored in. A priorians do not do that, and you will learn why. No man created anything of nature and no number of guns or other weapons, or government-sanctioned occupations, can justify mankind's ownership of the natural world. But we need to make a clear distinction between resources used for personal needs and assets owned as commercial or public property. Despite all of the wars and other conflicts over which system has more virtue, neither capitalism or socialism are justified and neither private or public ownership have legitimacy in the eyes of God. The church is the vehicle which Christians were given to operate in and through. Politics is nothing more than damnation wrapped up in double talk. Politics is the Tower of Babylon. Out of Babylon came the nations and peoples because they could no longer converse with each other and so could not create a power structure that would destroy God's presence on earth. But through the United Nations and other NGO the world is gradually being brought together into a NWO that will replace the authority of God on earth. There are three great axes of power, Islam, China and the West. There are other centers that to various degrees are aligned with the West, such as India. 
but as the West goes, so will go these areas, even India. The issues between China and Islam are unresolved, but so long as the West exists the issues between them are irrelevant to the objective of creating a one-world government. The final structure of the NWO depends on whether religious law or secular law, represented by Islam and communism, is prioritized by the United Nations after the fall of the West. From our perspective this step is irrelevant and redundant as it will presage Armageddon. We will find out who owns earth when the time comes. But in the meantime we must get right with God and this requires the church. But because the church and politics are incompatible, we have to come out of politics. Those who embrace the ownership model provided by the political systems of the world cannot exit the state. This is why we the people is such a dangerous and indeed, destructive trope. We the people refers only to the political race. As a phrase it does not include the church. Because the church not only does not need political parties and movements, but it is also diametrically opposed to them. The church and politics are rivals, not a team. One of the crucial dividing points between the two races is the conception of ownership. The state as we know lives by the code of the warrior, might makes right. In the mind of the state, its monopoly on power means it has the guns and martial power to define right from wrong. It has the power to protect its ownership claims and enforce its laws. Because it has this power the claims it makes and the laws it enforces must have merit. We can only own what we create, which as we said, requires the reinstatement of the labor theory of value. All truth is connected, and it is difficult to understand one truth without understanding them all. Which is why so much truth has been either ignored or fought against over the years. Ideas such as the labor theory of value have been mocked because the truths of ownership were rejected. Liberals think that because capitalists invest capital and take the risk that this investment represents, they deserve whatever profits the investment produces. This is little more than a fancy way of saying might makes right and the end justifies the means. But just because you brought the gun does not mean you get to rob the bank. Just because you took what you have no right to does not mean you get to use this to grab even more stuff that you have no right to. So long as we pay lip service to these political tropes that paint us as belonging to some great race called humanity, we will continue down the path to fascism. Nationalism may seem like a block to the new world order, but it is only a delaying tactic at best. The world's nations will continue down the road to unification by means of one device or the other, so long as democracy and the law are given free reign. So long as politics exist we will all be played off one against the other. Politicians need conflict to justify the provision of laws. Conflict creates a need for laws and law produces a need for politicians and their justice systems. The narrative is that they are providing security, but it is they who represent the larger risk. They claim they are bringing us together, but we will never be one people, because if we were politicians would be rendered redundant. There are two major groups and a single division. This is the biblical view. The division is fundamental and unbridgeable. Liberals are universalists and political. Liberals do believe humanity is a single people and regardless of the divisions, we can be unified by political means. Christians are alienated by this kind of thinking, or ought to be. People only believe what they have faith in. We cannot believe politicians because there is no reasonable path to a faith-based political system. Politicians are liars and they cannot promise anything which we do not have to provide. Which leaves us the church as the only other option to the political one. 
This opens wide the hypocrisy and threat of this oft-repeated phrase, with the people. The only possible justification for it is if we can establish a political unity between all people. The political system precludes this as there must always be division within any political system. Without an entitled group and a taxed group, politicians lose their legitimacy. But what is worse, at least from the standpoint of a Christian, with a people, is nothing less than a secularization of the body politic, the denial of legitimacy for the church. If there is a people that is of one voice and one substance, there is no Christianity and no church. Politics and the people of God are not compatible and we are not one with them.